Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Watch a TV show from the 1960s or 70s, or view pictures from baseball games in the 1950s, or even on airplanes in the 1970s. What was most noticeable, besides the clothing fashions at the time, was that there were always people smoking cigarettes or maybe cigars. In 1965, almost half of Americans smoked. Not anymore. Fifty years after the U.S. Surgeon General brought widespread attention to the health effects of smoking and years of aggressive campaigns against smoking and how tobacco was marketed, 15 percent of American adults smoke today. It's a trend the American Lung Association wants to see continue. The organization is out today with its 15th annual State of Tobacco Control Report. Joining us from the Mid-Atlantic, or excuse me, the American Lung Association of the Mid-Atlantic, President and CEO Deborah Brown, and Joy Meyer, who is Vice President of Community Impact. Ladies, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. We have a lot of ground to cover today because this is an issue that uh, when you describe it as so many people, so many fewer people smoking, you would think there's not quite as much to talk about, but there is because we're going to be talking about vaping a little bit later, you know, some other recommendations made for cessation and ways to keep younger people from starting to get smoking. But let's talk about the report itself. This is the 15th annual State of Tobacco Control Report. Uh, Give us some background on what it's designed to do. Sure. Well, the American Lung Association State of Tobacco Control Report really looks at states and the federal government on the policies that prevent and use um, prevent tobacco use. And so we give grades a report card or so um, on five different categories. We look at prevention and cessation funding. We look at smoke free air. We look at tobacco taxes access to cessation services, and the minimum age to purchase tobacco products. And so um, Pennsylvania kind of has a mixed bag. Uh, we have three Fs, a C and a D. And wow. uh, yeah, so we, we, we have a lot of work that uh, we need to do. Well, those three Fs, before we, we get to those three Fs, if, I know this is difficult because, as you said, it's both the state and, and the federal level. But if there is an overall grade of where we are right now, and I don't think you look at that here, but if you had to right now give uh, the country and the state an overall grade, what would it be? Well, I, I'm not sure I could do that, um, <laughs> to be honest. But, you know, I think that there are still a lot of challenges ahead for us. I, I like to think that, you know, we can put a couple simple measures into place or policies into place that could really increase those grades and make our, our tobacco control programs much more comprehensive here in the Commonwealth. Now, what do you base those grades on? <clears throat> we base them on um, what what is written in the policy. So we take a look at legislation that has been passed or regulations that that have been passed, and there's a grading system or a numbering system um, so that we're consistent across the country. Mm-hmm. As I said, uh, you know, that the, the latest figures, and this was, would be from 2015, uh, are that uh, just over 15% of Americans smoke. Uh, that is down from 10 years ago when it was 20%. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, 50% uh, just 50 years ago. So the trend is a good one. But 
you want to see it go further, right, Joy? Right. And 15% is, is a number that we're proud of because we know that policies across the nation are working to get that number down. But in contrast, here in Pennsylvania, we're at 18% of adult smoking. So we are above the national average. And the reason that we believe that we are is because of some of our weaknesses around policies that are outlined in this report, such as our Clean Indoor Air Act, um, our cessation coverage, um, our tax parity is not where it needs to be, as well as you know how these programs are funded to help people with their addiction to tobacco and nicotine. All those things you talked about, uh, we're going to talk specifically about them throughout the program. Who smokes today? You know, I, I, I think about places where I see people smoke. Most often, it's in a place where there's alcohol. Uh, where people are gathered, I, I say at ballparks. I, I mean, those pictures I talked about in the introduction, uh, it's, it's just amazing. You see everyone smoking a cigar or a cigarette in the stands. Now, most major league ballparks, for example, or football stadiums have designated smoking areas, even though there are several major league ballparks where there's no smoking whatsoever. So, you know, this is not a stereotype. This is the research of who is smoking today. Well, we know um, a lot of our vulnerable populations are really targeted by the tobacco industry. Um, and some of our major policies here in Pennsylvania exempt, um, have some exemptions that really affect those vulnerable populations. Um, we know that um, 6,700 kids under 18 become new daily smokers every year. Um, daily? Daily. Okay. So um, we have that. We have our LGBTQ community um, having a 60% more um, or more likely to be smokers than others. Um, so there are vulnerable populations um, that are really affected by the weaknesses of our policies and by the tobacco industry's marketing. But why? I mean, I, I, I guess that's a that's a question that mm -hmm. if we knew the all the answers or knew the exact answer, it would be a little bit easier to solve. But sure. why is it that certain groups are more susceptible well, to smoking? I think one of the things that we can look at is the tobacco industry and their marketing employees. Um, a lot of their their um, marketing efforts are really targeted to younger populations, vulnerable populations, um, areas where uh, you might have mom and pop stores on the corner. Corners, and so they're selling tobacco products and not enforcing the, you know, age requirement, those type of things. Um, so the industry puts a lot of money into advertising to these populations because they know that they're more susceptible and they know that, um, you know, they'll, they'll continue smoking. But not nearly as much marketing, maybe money-wise there is, mm -hmm. but uh, not nearly as much marketing as there used to be. I mean, no Correct. cigarette smoking uh, commercial or cigarette commercials on TV, mm -hmm. uh, limited in sports venues and things like that. So other than the, what you just described with the mom and pop stores, how are they getting, how are tobacco? companies getting to young people? Well, I think, you know, one of the other ways are these newer products. Um, and you mentioned vaping earlier. Right. So electronic cigarettes um, don't have the same requirements for marketing. Uh, they can market and have been marketing uh, for the last couple of years. The other interesting thing is that the tobacco industry knows that that is something young people are attracted to. And so consequently, there used to be several years ago, there used to be um, uh, lots of smaller companies who were responsible for electronic cigarettes. Today, the major tobacco industry or tobacco companies all market and all 
produce electronic cigarettes. So they saw that these newer products are the way to get younger people um, addicted to these products. And we're going to talk about uh, electronic cigarettes in, in a few minutes as well. Um, but, Joy, obviously one of the keys to stopping people from smoking is to get to them before they start. Now, you talked about the, the numbers with the number of daily smokers, but what works? How do you get to young people to keep them from starting in the first place? There's been tons of research about that, about how does, what message really um, gets to these youth and makes them understand uh, the negative effects of tobacco use and exposure. And what we found is that if we really need to change the social norm, and to change the social norm, we have to change policy. So by enacting higher taxes on cigarettes, you know, less youth will buy. Um, by um, having uh, more spaces that are smoke-free, uh, the, the social norm will then change. Um, youth education is a really important part of Pennsylvania's tobacco control program. We have a youth movement where we really emphasize um, health promotion efforts around all chronic diseases as well as peer-to-peer -peer education. We find that when, peer, when youth educate other youth, um, it's really effective. Um, the CDC has done, um, you know, several research, and there's there's been a lot of information about this. So we like to go into these schools um, and educate youth, and then give them opportunity to educate their community and and fellow peers. Mm -hmm. You talk about those social norms. I mean, I'm thinking back over the years, just in my lifetime. I mean, when I was really young, uh, everyone smoked. Everyone smoked. But my father used to, he was a three, four-pack-a-day guy, and it was pal-mal and lucky strikes, you know, unfiltered. This was even yeah. before unfiltered things. Um, but everyone smoked. Then, as we became more educated... Uh, it seemed as though why people would start in the first place because it was a cool thing to do, that you look more mature, at least for young people, that this was the reason you started to smoke. But then, again, as kids became more educa educated, you would see, and many, many times, I, over the years, I would hear younger children saying to adults, you shouldn't be smoking, because in school, that's what they have heard. So... Where are we now, social norm-wise? I mean, uh, when, Joy, you say that peer-to-peer, -peer, I mean, everyone out there knows that uh, smoking can have a, a bad impact on your, on your health. But why do they smoke anyway? Well, that's, that's a good question. And I, I live for good <laughs> questions on this show, Joy. <laughs> well, at the American Lung Association, our mission is to prevent lung disease and to improve lung health. And we know that smoking um, is an addiction, and we need to see it as such. Um, so this is why we really support um, treatment options and um, removing barriers to cessation coverage. Um, but we also need to educate people on the link between tobacco use and exposure and chronic diseases such as diabetes and asthma and heart disease and stroke and cancer. Um, all of these are very important to understand that link. Um, we spend um, over $6 billion in health-related costs due to tobacco-related disease and death here in Pennsylvania. Just in Pennsylvania. That's just in Pennsylvania. Just in Pennsylvania. Um, that's a lot of money. Um, and I'm sure the General Assembly would like that back. 
So um, that amount of money, when you look at it as it relates to other chronic diseases, it's just not about the tobacco user. It's about how tobacco use and exposure relates to these other chronic diseases that we're all trying to reduce. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about the American Lung Association's 15th annual uh, smoking, or excuse me, tobacco, state of tobacco control report. I'll get the words out yet. And our guest today, Deb Brown, president and CEO, and Joy Meyer, vice president of community impact at the American Lung Association of Mid-Atlantic. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page or on Twitter at smarttalk. WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. And we're going to take some phone calls here in just a moment. But one part of this report that really jumped out at me uh, is because you are advocating for this. And that is raising the minimum age where a person can legally buy a pack of cigarettes from 18 to 21. Why? Correct. So the American Lung Association does strongly support increasing that minimum age for the sale of all tobacco products to 21. Um, the National Academy of Medicine found that by increasing that minimum age to 21, we would significantly reduce youth tobacco use and we would in the long run, save thousands of lives. And um, really, 18 to 21 is a time when many smokers are transitioning from experimenting with tobacco to really becoming full and regular users. And so uh, over 95% of adults smoke their first cigarette before the age of 21. And so anything that we can do to delay young people, young adults from uh, starting to use tobacco certainly will help um, in the long run. We also know that um, smokers aged 18 and 19 are a major supplier of cigarettes to younger children. And so um, we want to, again, try and make sure that we uh, do all that we can to prevent that from happening. And then the other thing that, that I think is really important is that there's a lot of brain development going on um, in our early years, and um, many reports show up to the age of 25. And so um, we need to make sure that um, nicotine is is a very addictive process and can, can actually um, affect that brain development. And so we want to make sure that, you know, people have opportunities, young people have opportunities to have the fullest life available to them. And so um, we uh, just think that this is a great way to really, as I say, save save lives and prevent young people from ever starting. And then we won't have to help them quit. There are two states now where the minimum mm -hmm. age to purchase cigarettes is, is 21 and also the Dis District of Columbia. Uh, have they had this law in place long enough to see any kind of results? If so, what? I think Hawaii uh, has was the first state to do this. So, um, and that was probably a little less than a year ago. So I think the results are still out. California was fairly recent and the District of Columbia was fairly recent. So um, this is something new to the tobacco control world, but um, we know that, uh, and, and for example, when national sales um, 
age of 21 for alcohol sales resulted. There was a reduced alcohol consumption among youth and uh, decreased alcohol dependence, and then a reduction in, um, in, in this case, uh, drunk driving fatalities. So we think that the results will be very similar for tobacco use. This report actually has some estimates on how many lives would be saved. What are the estimates? I actually, I, I have the figure. I saw the look on your face, and you don't have it in front of you. It's like 223,000. Yeah. It's like 223,000 lives that would be saved. How, and we're, are we just talking about lung cancers there or other diseases as well? I think we are talking about a variety of lung diseases in general. Um, I think it's really important to remember that tobacco use affects every organ in our body. Um, you know, everything that that um, we put into um, or, or in the tobacco product can affect major organs. And um, so I think it's really um, just for lung disease in general. Um, but we do know that um, lung cancer is the nation's leading cancer uh, killer. Mm-hmm. One final question on uh, the minimum age. Uh, any move here in Pennsylvania? Are there legislators out there that you've talked to? Are there legislators who said, who have said that, that this is something that we would like to do, that uh, we would look into introducing this in, in Pennsylvania? Yes, the American Lung Association has been talking with legislators, and there is some interest in this. Um, there is no legislation at this point, um, but the session just started. So uh, hopefully we'll see something in the next uh, upcoming year. All right, let's take some phone calls. Let's go to Eric in York. Eric, you're on the air. Hello, Scott. Hello, ladies. Uh, my question was actually pretty simple. I, I don't know of any benefits of tobacco to the body. Um, maybe with alcohol, sometimes people talk about wine or whatever, having some you know moderate benefits in you know small amounts. Um, why do we even allow this whole thing to exist? Uh, it just seems like it's totally detrimental to people's bodies and their life and health care and everything. That was my comment. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to answer the question for you, but it would seem to be difficult because it is so ingrained in our society. But his, his point, I mean, it's a bottom line question. If there are no benefits to it, why allow it at all? You know, the history of tobacco, not only in our country, but around the world, is a long one. You know, going back forever that we know of, tobacco has played a part in our in our social um, cultures. And now that we have the research to know what those harmful effects are is when we have begun as a public health community to start the education of those harmful um, effects of tobacco use and exposure. We didn't know then what it did to the body. And now we do know. So, you know, it's our role as a public health organization to um, do loads of health promotion to make everyone understand how addiction to tobacco really will harm you um, and harm your loved ones around you. I also can hear um, probably some smokers out there who would say that prohibition of alcohol didn't work. And that uh, if you would prohibit cigarettes, smoking cigarettes completely, that there would be a black market and there would be people who would continue to smoke. Not justifying it, just saying I can hear I can hear those arguments. Uh, let's take another phone call from uh, Christopher in New Providence. Christopher, you're on the air. Yes, hello. Hi. I actually have a warning for smoke. I am a smoker, and I used to fix vending machines, and and I covered uh, about eighty percent of the nine counties in in PA. 
80% of the smoking sections at the new factories are right next to the gas meter. That's where the kitchen is. You need the gas for the kitchen stove. You go out from the lunch room, and there's your smoking section. Watch out where you light up. <laughs> where is OSHA in this thing? Hey, okay. Did you hear his, his last question? Where is OSHA in, in this? Well, I, that's a good question because um, I don't believe that there are any OSHA regulations that um, prohibit uh, smoking in certain places. But again, I think that's something that, um, you know, the American Lung Association really believes that uh, we should not have any smoking indoors. Um, and obviously, we should be very careful outdoors as well um, where, where these uh, locations are. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. It'll scare the hell out of you. Yeah, really. Yeah. Hey, thanks for your warning, Christopher. Yeah. Thank you very much. And now maybe uh, uh, those people who are stepping outside for a cigarette will watch where they are lighting up. You know, that's, that's something a lot of people don't think about is that uh, you're just assuming that the designated smoking area is safe. Mm -hmm. But uh, right next to a gas line, no, 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 that would not be a good idea. Terry is in Christiana. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, was, I was wondering, are you able to make a category for the health and welfare of the very young Amish children that are forced to work with the entire growing and harvesting of the toxic tobacco plants? You drive through southern Lancaster County and you see tobacco everywhere, and you do see in the summertime, uh, you see the young Amish kids out there uh, working in the fields, that's for sure. Hey, they, they work the whole year, planting, harvesting, stripping, hauling handling the stock. So it's basically a year-long problem, and they come up with many um, problems from the pesticides, such as seizures, headaches, insensitivities. Hmm. I live right in the middle of it, and I just can hardly stand that no one will try to do something for these children. They're tiny. Thank you very much for your call. You know, our... Uh our audience comes up with some fantastic questions. Mm -hmm. I'll bet that's one you have not <laughs> dealt with before. Have it you? Not. It, it is not. But one. it is a very good point. I mm -hmm. mean, those who, and not just Amish kids, but is uh, most mm -hmm. tobacco, I would assume, here in Pennsylvania is grown by Amish farmers. Just, just handling the leaves, are there health effects to that? I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. I mean, it Next is time a you really come back, Dad, it is you have really, to have that I answer. do. I know it is a really good question. <laughs> but we have had lots of discussion about, about uh, yeah. the tobacco crops here in Pennsylvania and what the effect of um, these policies would be on the economy of that. And what we have found was, and I'll let Deb take this because she has the numbers in her head, um, but as I come from a farming background as well, I'll put a shout out to the PFA, Pennsylvania Farm Association. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, tobacco farming is just a small percentage of what we produce here in crops in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, that is not going to be the economic impact that some people think it is, because really it's just a small minority of what we really produce yeah, here but in if Pennsylvania. You're a farmer, if you're a farmer, that's your main crop or one of your main crops. It may be small overall, but, I, I mean, if your income's taking a hit, I, you know, and, and again, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you mm -hmm. that it's a small percentage, because back when... Uh, you know, we really got aggressive with smoking cessation and anti-marketing programs. Uh, you know, we heard about Virginia. We heard about North Carolina. Oh, what are they going to do? Kentucky. What are they going to do? They're going to be farmers put out of business. And maybe some of them were. 
I, I, I don't know what, what's happened since. Have, has there been research on that over the last uh, 20 or 30 years? I don't know what the research is over the last 20 or 30 years, but I do know when the Master Settlement Agreement went into effect, what, where uh, states were paid for their and, and reimbursed for um, their health care costs from, from Medicaid, um, I do know that there was emphasis placed on tobacco-growing states to help farmers really look at other crops that you know, they could certainly grow as well. But, you know, there are some challenges with that as well. You know, tobacco is very acidic, uh, so the ground becomes very acidic. So it's not like you can flip the, you know, the switch tomorrow and grow something else. So, um, But I do know that there has been uh, funds that have been placed and, and, and distributed to help farmers really switch over. We have a, we had a comment here from Wayne in Myerstown. He said he was a smoker for many, many years, tried everything, finally quit when diagnosed with emphysema, hasn't smoked for two and a half years, Good. but it's a constant struggle. And he said we f- he feels like we simply need to outlaw tobacco. Um, so he's kind of following up on Eric's phone call a little bit later. But the point that Wayne makes, and let's talk about it, the, the cessation programs and how difficult it is to stop smoking. I mean, I have seen it. Uh, so many people, family, friends, loved ones that have tried and just it is such a struggle so difficult to do what works is it different for everyone what actually is the most successful way to stop smoking i think it is different for every person we know that seven out of ten smokers want to quit smoking we know that probably half of them will try and we know that only about 10% of them will be successful. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard of many people. They've tried many, many times. Um, you know, it's not unusual for people to try seven to ten times to quit smoking. Um, I think, you know, each time the person basically practices that attempt to quit smoking, they learn more about themselves and they learn more about, you know, how to help themselves quit smoking. Um, you know, at the American Lung Association, we do support the use of the seven... Uh, federal Drug Administration approved cessation treatments. So that's things like gums and patches, lozenges, inhalers. Um, there's two medications. We do encourage counseling along with the use of those treatment um, treatments. And then we also want to make sure that people don't have barriers to quit. So, you know, for some people, it might be a copay. It might be that they have to try something, uh, one type of treatment first and fail at that so they can try another treatment. It might be that um, they have to have prior authorization to get one of the medications, and that's a stumbling block for them. So we want to make sure that people have access to every opportunity that they need to quit smoking, but I don't think that there's one um, specific piece that I could identify that says this is what you need to use to help mm-hmm. you quit smoking. You know, I t- talked about my father earlier, and he smoked so much, he got a nicotine patch, mm-hmm. and it worked. <clears throat> I was shocked because he smoked so much, but he, once he got that patch, he almost, now I will say this, that he replaced cigarettes with food, which is something mm-hmm. else that you have to be concerned sure. with. Also, some of the medications you talk about, Shantix, we see that uh, advertised on television a lot. Uh, one of my coworkers here tried that and was absolutely miserable. Mm-hmm. He said, I just, I could not, you know, they, the doctor told him that there's possibility, and you hear about the side effects sure. in the TV commercial, depression, suicidal thoughts. Now, I don't think he had that. But he just said he was miserable. Of course, 
I think that's what happens with a lot of smokers when they're trying to stop is that they're so used to it that a lot of times there is that personality change at the very beginning when they're trying to stop. I think one of the things we often tell people is that you've learned to smoke. You weren't born smoking. You learned to smoke and you have to unlearn that behavior. And it's difficult. I mean, you know, if you don't smoke, think about trying to lose weight. Think about trying to put exercise into your lifestyle. Um, it's just a really difficult thing sometimes for people to do. And then you add the addiction process on to that. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's difficult. People often say that they've quit smoking now for 10, 15 years, but they still dream about picking up that cigarette or they still smell someone smoking a cigarette and it brings back memories. And uh, I think, you know, it just it just goes to show how addictive this process is. As a, as a follow-up, I am I am a former smoker um, and now work for the American Lung Association. How many so years have you quit? I have been quit since 2001. What worked? How did uh, you stop? Cold turkey worked You went me. cold turkey. Cold oh, turkey. wow. But I think that's just, that goes as an example that something that works for one person may not work for another. So there needs to be that opportunity to you know access all the different pieces of cessation and here in Pennsylvania we have a great tobacco control program that is funded by the Pennsylvania Department of Health we have access to our Pennsylvania free quit line for people who want to quit 1-800-QUIT-NOW we have local cessation groups um, that is group therapy um, as well as nicotine replacement therapy for free within your local communities and we have online um, so uh, we are doing our best to really put out all the alternatives for people to find their own path in quitting this addiction but in this report you talk about uh, states that in their Medicaid the Medicaid expansion mm -hmm. is part of Obamacare uh, that there are smoking cessation uh, programs. Pennsylvania is not one of those states. What are you recommending? Well, Pennsylvania Medicaid program offers the seven medications. They're all right, covered, right. but they only offer some counseling. They don't offer all counseling. And there are a lot of back barriers that um, people have to go through in order to get those medications or, or treatment therapies. Um, the state employee health plan, only some medications are covered, not all medications. So, for example, if someone tried you know, something as your coworker did and that didn't work for them, they might not be able to get other medications. So um, private insurers here in, in Pennsylvania, there's no provision that mandates that they offer cessation and, and, and all seven uh, treatments, recommended treatments. So I think, um, again, we have a lot of work ahead of us to make sure that people have access, as Joyce said, to everything that they possibly need to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take a phone call from Roy in Sealands Grove. Roy, you're on the air. Um, hi, Scott. Hi. I just wanted to uh, uh, mention this since you uh, mentioned prohibition of alcohol yes. earlier that uh, if you look at the statistics of uh, uh, per capita alcohol consumption over time, there there was a drastic reduction of uh, per capita alcohol consumption um, certainly in, by 1934. So you're, you're, are you saying that if there was a prohibition against tobacco, that uh, there would be a, a reduction in tobacco use, too? Uh, I, I think that would be pretty likely. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much, Roy, for your phone call. You know, as I was researching this, alcohol consumption came up, and I'm just this is just one of those little trivial things. As I, I saw along the way, that it was like in 1880 that the average American consumed seven gallons of at least 80 proof alcohol. Mm-hmm. Think about wow. that. <laughs> wow! Wow! <laughs> yeah. You know, they were when they were going into the saloons back in those days. You know, cigars may have been the, the least of it that they had to worry about. In fact, we had a uh, we had a question here from a listener who asked, you know, we're focusing a lot on cigarettes. Uh, for the first time last year, Pennsylvania, for the longest time, we were the only state in the country that did not t- tax other tobacco products. But for the first time, we are doing that now. But uh, the listener's question is, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be as much emphasis on cigars, on pipe smoking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see as many pipe smokers as I used to either. But uh, what about that? How does uh, how do the health effects compare when it comes to cigars, when it comes to pipe smoking, other uses of tobacco compared mm-hmm. to cigarettes? Um, well, certainly there are health risks associated with the use of those particular products. And most likely uh, the oral cancers, uh, you know, lip, mouth, uh, nose, um, et cetera, tongue. Um, I think, you know, the important thing to remember is that, yes, we did put a tax um, on those other tobacco products. The only thing that is not taxed in the Commonwealth is cigars. There is no tax on cigars. We are the only state, along with Florida, that does not tax those products. And so um, what we at the American Lung Association want to make sure is that that tax on other tobacco products equals the tax on a pack of cigarettes. Because if they don't equal, at some point in time, people are going to see that those products are cheaper and that they will start utilizing those products because they are cheaper instead of regular cigarettes. And so we have cigars that can be anywhere from 99 cents to, I'm sure you know, hundreds of dollars. And uh, we you know, are very concerned about that because young people do use cigars. Something that Joy used the word earlier, and that is part of uh, the report, and that is uh, tax parity. Parity. That's exactly what you described, isn't it? Exactly, yes. Go a little further with it. So tax parity means that, um, again, you want a pack of cigarettes, the tax, the excise tax is $2.60. So we would want products such as little cigars, cigars, uh, smokeless tobacco, pipe and roll your own tobacco, any types of dissolvable tobacco. We would want those to be equal. And and to be equal, it's probably about 60 to 70% of a whole wholesale price. And so right now in Pennsylvania, we have five different tax structures. So we have $2.60 on a pack of cigarettes. We have 14 cents per little cigar. So they're usually in a pack of five or six. Um, We have 55 cents per ounce on smokeless tobacco and roll your own. And then uh, electronic cigarettes, we have 40% of wholesale. So you can see there's a wide disparity there. But we we want that um, tax to be the same and equal to per pack, um, and then that way people wouldn't be more likely to switch over to cheaper products. I know we that uh, just in the last year we finally have a tax on other tobacco Correct. products, so I may be jumping ahead a little bit, but why isn't it now? Why isn't there parity now? 
uh, I believe, just because this is the first time we've we've you know been able to even uh, have a tax addressed uh, with the legislature, and you know it's a win-win for everyone, a win for public health because we know fewer people will start smoking. Uh, we know that the government will. Um, generate some revenue, much needed revenue um, for for the general fund. And uh, I think, you know, we, we took a step in the right direction, but I still think we have a ways to go. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about the state of tobacco control report put out today by the American Lung Association. Our both our guests are both from the American Lung Association of the Mid-Atlantic. Joy Myers, the vice president of Community Impact, and Deb Brown is president and CEO. Question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. All right, before we go back to the phone, take more phone calls, you've talked a lot about taxes. You know, on this program, very often when we're talking about policy and we're talking about uh, generating revenue, often taxes are a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, people don't like to pay more in taxes. But you are advocating raising taxes having taxes as high as they can be so but not to generate revenue as much as to keep people from smoking correct we're looking at it from a public health standpoint um one of our neighboring states new york has a four dollar and 35 cent excise tax on their tobacco products and so um the american lung association knows that if you increase the tax you will certainly have young people not start using tobacco products or potentially say, you know, priced way out of my league, I'm not going to even, you know, try these products. Um, you will have adults who, who really start second guessing their their lifestyle and saying, you know what, I don't want to be putting all that money into this product. I'd like to try and quit. And so again, it goes back to making sure that we have the cessation services necessary and, and access to those. But absolutely, we believe that the... Um, Cigarettes, the higher price they are, the the fewer smokers that we'll see. You know, I sense that in Pennsylvania, most legislators look at taxes on cigarettes as an avenue to generate revenue rather than talk. The the health effects uh, are really kind of, oh, yeah, that's a nice thing, too. But for the most part, it's because this is an area where it's a sin tax. It's it's Mm -hmm. one of those taxes that most people, the only people who will suffer from it are those who continue to to smoke. Uh, You know, I always wondered, though, uh, do we get to a point where when we do tax cigarettes or tobacco products, uh, that they keep going higher and higher and people stop smoking, stop using mm-hmm. I know you that's what you want, but the state is looking at it as, well, we're not generating revenue from that any mm-hmm. longer. I know that's not your problem, but is there kind of a balance there? I don't know that what the balance is, but, you know, what we find is every time states raise tobacco taxes, they really, they increase the revenue that they're bringing into the general 
general fund or the general budget. And so, um, again, we just encourage them, you know, public health benefits for many of our policymakers is a secondary benefit. Um, you know, it's it's our primary, but it is a secondary for them. But um, anytime they increase the excise tax, they do generate additional revenue. And so, um, I, I, again, we still encourage policymakers to do that. And they also decrease other costs because you, gotta, you have less cost in tobacco-related disease and death, again, you know, over six billion dollars in Pennsylvania. If you're re if you're increasing tax and people are quitting, then you have less expense when it comes to tobacco-related disease. And yes, that. Joy, but you're asking people to look down the road. That's exactly no, right. You're looking people asking <laughs> yeah. people to look at the big picture. No, I'm not advocating against. I'm just saying that, that that's you know, unfortunately, right. when we go year to year with a tight budget and revenue is tight, uh, you know, people aren't really thinking about down the road. But you're right that that we would save money in the long run if we did that. Uh, let's Let's take a phone call from Peter in Carlisle. Peter, you're on the air. Hello. Um, I'm wondering if uh, your panelists are familiar with Alan Carr and his method for stopping smoking. He's also written a book called Easy Way to Stop Smoking. Uh, from what I understand, his method, which involves no drugs, is uh, more successful than any other method by far. I'm wondering why the American Lung Association doesn't promote Alan Carr and his method so highly successful. Well, what what does he use? What's Without using drugs, what does he use? Well, addiction is mostly a mental process, and uh, he understands the nature of the addiction. And uh, he used to do seminars all over the country, and uh, and he's written a book. Some people can stop smoking just by reading the book. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, you, you're not familiar with Alan Carr? I am not familiar, but, you know, the American Lung Association, there's multiple programs out there, and the American Lung Association uses programs that um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention um, support via best practices. Um, we know the program that we have uh, called Freedom from Smoking at the American Lung Association has been proven to be quite effective. So I think, you know, there's, there's multiple programs out there. There's room for everyone because there's lots of people who want to quit smoking, and I I think, again, we go back to whatever works best for each individual. As long as they quit smoking, that's the most important thing. Let's go to Nick in Lancaster. Nick, you're on the air. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Hey, uh, curious, um, is there any research on um, companies that claim to be cleaner uh, pre-rolled tobacco um, producers? And... If so, is it less detrimental as they claim? Are you talking about uh, like farmers, uh, tobacco farmers who are not using as many pesticides or pesticides at all? Well, that's kind of where I'm getting at. Like, um, you know, American Spirits claims to be a cleaner pre-rolled cigarette. Um, like, what if what if the market kind of switched their gears and said, "Hey, let's market organic cigarettes." You know, the papers are organic. The tobacco is organic. Um, it wouldn't necessarily get rid of the problem of smoking, but it would make it would raise the level of awareness of health in general, uh -huh. um, and it would be a step towards eradicating, as a previous caller had mentioned. All right, thank you very much for your call. I mean, obviously, there's more that goes into a, a cigarette than just the pesticides. That and I don't even know if the pesticides are, are causing a, a problem, but what about that an organic cigarette? Well, the laundry list that goes into a cigarette is uh, long, and you can't pronounce most of uh, 
the names that are are in that but anytime you light something and burn and inhale a burning product you're going to be doing um, harm to your lungs um, that and it's still an addictive product so you still have that addiction um, you're still getting nicotine nicotine is still mm -hmm. there absolutely mm -hmm. what are some of the other chemicals that uh, you, you said that some are too long to pronounce mm -hmm. so we don't have to get into that but I mean generally what are some of the other harmful chem chemicals well there's formaldehyde uh, arsenic yep um, <laughs> cadmium uh, you know those type of, of products are, are in cigarettes. One of the things that uh, you advocate as well is making the packaging that there is more graphic warnings. Okay, now I have to say that some of those public service announcements I've seen for smoking that are just downright gross and, you know, with people holding their throats and, right. you know, that kind of thing. And, I mean, do those things have an impact? I mean, and what are you talking about as far as being more graphic with your warnings? So you're probably referring to tips from former smokers yeah, yeah. from the CDC. Um, what we have found, they, the CDC has done research. When they release those types of ads, the uh, quit attempts go up. They spike. They do work then. They spike. They mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you look at our packaging and what's being... Um, suggested in in the United States versus what is on packaging in other states such as Australia um, in the United other Kingdom countries, you mean. yeah, yeah. It, it's those the graphics on those products are even well, worse like what? than what's being well, attempted. what are you advocating for more graphic which well, is more of an education on on the product itself you know right now it's the you know Surgeon General's warning um, but you know actually having uh, more of a graphic image that gets people's attention uh, every time they pick up that pack of cigarettes. And the coverage on the package um, is definitely important. And I know we've been advocating for at least half of the package to be um, have have a warning on it. Um, but that's one of the things you know that we need to work on uh, nationwide is to make sure that we get those graphic images on there. I think um, I don't know if you're aware, but there were images that were initially sent out, and uh, you know the public had an opportunity to view them. And um, there were some people who thought they were too graphic. There were some people who thought they weren't graphic enough. And so um, it went back, and uh, we're we're still grappling with that issue. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's take a phone call from, uh, let's see, Gary in Hanover. Gary, you're on the air. Hello, Gary. Hello. Yeah, Gary. Hello. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Doing well. Listen, um, I've been a smoker for years. I'm 62. I live in long disability. I started smoking when I was 12 years old. And uh, taxes they're putting on them are absolutely killing me, and I can't quit. I've tried everything. You want to quit. quit? Do you want do you want to quit? Yes, I want to, but I can't. I I I can't. You know, I think I think it's kind of ironic there, Gary. You said the taxes are killing you. Uh but okay, so what have you tried? Oh my god, I've been to uh smoking classes uh from at Hanover Hospital to to cold turkey to you name it. Um, now I'm rolling my own because it's the only thing I can afford, and they raise your taxes on that. My question is, what are you doing? What What are you What are you taxing the people that don't smoke? I mean, it seems, seems like I'm, I'm 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 paying I'm paying their way. All right. Thank you very much for your call. 
I'm sure you've heard this before, but uh, Joy, what about the Gary situation? Well, I think Gary, it takes, you know, we know it takes many attempts uh, for people. It took myself, I, it took five attempts for me to quit smoking and I finally did it. Um, and it's all about finding the one that works for you. Um, you have to have an open mind of, you know, looking for those those uh, pieces. We can um you know, we'd happy we'd be happy to help you if you want to contact our office, the American Lung Association. We can put you in in, in contact with some really great people that may be able to help you quit, um, and that's the most important thing. And I think you know, I just want to go back to you know what what are why are we taxing? You know, we all pay in Pennsylvania, as we said earlier, six point three eight billion dollars in annual health care costs related to tobacco use. So we all pay, um, even if you don't smoke, we all pay for those health care costs. We only have a few minutes left, and I wanted to cover a couple other things. One, uh, in this report, you talk about having a goal of no one in the country being exposed to secondhand smoke by the year 2019. That's only two years away. How do you do that? We work really hard with state legislatures to make sure that they put into place comprehensive clean indoor air laws or smoke-free air laws. And here in the Commonwealth, we got a C for our smoke-free air. We still have many, many loopholes. Right now, casinos are 50% of the floor um, is still smoking. And if you walk into a casino, for example, it could be anywhere. You could have every other machine smoking and non-smoking. And there are probably uh, anywhere between 20 to 30,000 employees who work in our um, casino industry that are being exposed to secondhand smoke every day. There are still some restaurants and some bars that uh, smoking is permitted as a result of some of the exemptions. Uh, Private clubs still smoking in some of these clubs. So uh, we really need to tighten the loopholes here in Pennsylvania. Um, And I think it's important there are nine states that currently include the use of electronic cigarettes in their clean indoor air laws. And so we'd like to see that happen here in Pennsylvania as well. You mentioned uh, e-cigarettes a couple times, or vaping, as uh, as some people call it. Uh, The Surgeon General released his first ever uh, report last month didn't get a lot of attention because December is not exactly a good time to release uh, reports like this uh, with everything going on. But what were the conclusions of that report? Sure. Um, electronic cigarette use among high school students increased 900 percent from 2011 to 2015. And electronic cigarettes are now the most commonly used form of tobacco among young people. But what about the health effects? The health effects, there's still, um, you know, a lot of uh, work to be done on that, but we do know that there are health effects associated with that. We also know that there um, are young people who are using um, electronic cigarettes and regular cigarettes. Um, There's flavors that are attached to electronic cigarettes, which make it much more appealing to young people, but um, we do know that there are some... um, products in there that are not healthy for people to be breathing or, or using. It sounds to me, though, as if uh, this is st- still so new that we don't have any long-term research on whether that, you know, how far uh, we go with uh, with negative health effects from, uh, from East. I mean, it's been marketed as this is healthier for you. This is a way to stop smoking tobacco. Well, it was just recently uh, with the FDA regulations that came through and their deeming rolling over um, 
electronic products that we were even able to get what was in these products. Many of them are manufactured, um, most of them are manufactured outside of the United States, uh, which don't have the same safety uh, uh, guidance that we have here. Um, so we are now just finding out exactly what's in these pieces. But what we do know is that the chemical concentration in the liquid used in within those e-cigarettes, um, they vary by cartridge. So individual cartridges with the same label from the same manufacturer may have different nicotine levels. Mm. I, I wish we had more time because there was so much more to discuss. Where can our listeners get access to your report? As I said, it was just released today. I have about 10 seconds. Sure. www.lung.org. That's easy to remember. <laughs> uh, Deb Brown and Joy Meyer with uh, the American Lung Association of the Mid-Atlantic, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk about new home sales coming up in uh, talking about uh, new home sales in 2017 in Pennsylvania.